Our Bible reading today is from Revelation chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait for a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? In 303 AD, Roman Emperor Diocletian became a persecutor. It is difficult to understand Diocletian's action. His wife Prisca and his daughter Valeria had become Christians. Many servants and officials in the imperial palace were also Christians. For 20 years he had shown no desire to persecute the church. The persecution began on February 23, 303, without any warning. On that day police and workmen went to the big church in Nicomedia, Diocletian's capital. They burned its Bibles, took its furnishings, and destroyed the building totally. 
During the year that followed, four edicts of persecution were published. These edicts successively declared that all Christians of the upper classes would be deprived of their official positions and privileges. Christians in the imperial court would become slaves unless they renounced Christianity. All Christians were deprived of their rights of citizenship. All churches were to be destroyed, and all sacred books burned. All Christian clergy and church officials were to be imprisoned. Eusebius, in his History of the Church, writes, In every town great numbers were locked up, and everywhere the prisons which had been built long before for murderers and grave robbers were being crowded with bishops, presbyters and deacons, readers and exorcists, so that now there was no room in them for those convicted of crimes. All leaders so imprisoned were to be compelled either to sacrifice to the gods or to be mutilated by endless tortures. The fourth decree required all Christians, without exception, to sacrifice to the gods on pain of imprisonment or severer punishment. The persecution was utterly severe. At its end, if a church leader did not have the marks of the whip or of other forms of torture on his body, he was suspected of having betrayed the faith. Thousands died and thousands more went through life maimed, blinded, or disfigured by torture. In 311, Galerius became seriously ill. After an eight-year effort to destroy the church, he found it stronger and more determined than at the beginning. His sickness brought him near death. Eusebius writes, as he struggled with this terrible sickness, he was filled with a remorse for his cruel treatment of God's servants. So he pulled himself together, and after first making open confession to the God of the universe, he called his court officials and ordered them to lose no time in stopping the persecution of Christians. Wonderful story uh, in part and traumatic and terrible in part, wouldn't you say? The story we've heard is taken from a fantastic book I commend to you. Uh, it's a small book, it's a cheap book, it's a valuable book. Uh, Brief History of the Early Church by Harry Bohr. Uh, you'll love it. It tells you stories like that. will also help you understand why when we say a creed, how that came to be and why it matters. Uh, do you see all these theological things play out in the life of the church when it was a life and death battle and haven't we heard a life and death battle um red that was not one of our members who has turned into a cyborg it kind of sounds like whitney bell as she became a fembot from austin powers but it's not um that was a computer just in case you're wondering did someone turn weird they didn't what you've heard uh is a story that shows The trauma and difficulty of living in the world that we live in and the grip that God still has on it. You hear a story of someone like Diocletian. Diocletian, the Roman emperor who leads this persecution. Uh, The words are not lost on me. that clergy are thrown in jail and if you're a church leader and you don't have the marks of uh, torture on you, maybe you've been dodging a few bullets by uh, backing away from your faith. It's heavy stuff. You hear this story of Diocletian, you also hear of one of his peers, Galerius, brought to repentance and saved by a gracious God who would come, fall on his knees and acknowledge the God of the universe. Now when you hear about Diocletian and this terrible persecution, hopefully by now in this series you know that sometimes people die for calling on the name of Jesus. And Diocletian's persecution in the 4th century was certainly not the last In fact, to this day, 80% of the world's persecution is directed upon your brothers and sisters in Christ. Prior to Diocletian, 
Well, other Roman emperors, one in particular that we should note today is a guy called Domitian in the first century. Domitian was a serious egomaniac of an emperor who seriously persecuted Christians. And Domitian is really important to us because it's in the context of his reign, in the context of his tyrannical reign and persecution, that this book, Revelation, written by John, the apostle of Jesus, was written. And you can't understand the book in its fullness. You can't appreciate the book in its fullness without understanding the context and the world that it's written in under this guy, Domitian. When we talk about context, I'll say more about this persecution complex, but it's also important to understand the style of the writing, of course. If you've come looking for blueprints, you're in the wrong book today. This is not a blueprint. This doesn't read like some of those letters of Paul that say, do this, cause of that, isn't God great? Gotcha, Paul, thank you. It's like he sent you a memorandum. This is different. What we have here is best described as a political cartoon. Let me show you how cartoons work just a little bit with a test. Let's uh, see this first screen. A political cartoon can look like this. Let me pause for a moment and say it is not my intention in any way to disparage or disrespect any of our political leaders. Let it be noted, I count that as abhorrent, and I think it's a sad part of Australian culture, and totally counter God's word. However, for our understanding, you might see this cartoon. And if I asked you, who's in this cartoon? You can call it out. Who do you see? Tony Abbott. Now, now through the day, uh, Pauline Hanson also would have been an appropriate response. Uh, Senator Pauline Hanson did turn up in, in Muslim dress one day at question time. But we all recognise, we all, 10 o'clockers, recognise the guy with the large ears and the speedos. That's former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Through the course of today, I will not get the same answer. When I ask this question at 6pm this evening, some will know Tony Abbott. Some will say, oh, wasn't it one of the Prime Minister guys? And in years to come, some will be like, oh, that's funny, a guy in speedos and someone in Muslim dress. And that'll be it. But you've lived in a time where you remember when our Prime Minister was also an Ironman triathlete, and I do not know how he balanced that hobby and that job. Uh, and you might remember the time where Senator Hanson also uh, dressed in an unusual way one day. You will know, based on that, that this cartoon is more than funny. It makes a huge statement, doesn't it, about some of the big conversation that was happening in Australia at the time and some of the different feelings and the different postures that were taken with regard to different things. You don't expect to turn up at Mr. Abbott's office and find him in speedos. You understand what it's saying and perhaps what it's not saying. And that is the kind of context you're going to need as you come to Revelation, to understand this book well, to get your head around the way that it wants to communicate. Now let me offer you another interpretive tool for Revelation. And that is the effect it has upon you. This is a book, this is a book that was written when you would come to church and you would grieve because someone's missing today. They got killed this week. Why? For doing what we're doing now. This is a church that was written at a time when you might come to church having looked over your shoulder to see who saw you coming to this gathering because now you're in danger. This was a book that God gave to John 
to the church so that when it was read by a people who were suffering, persecuted, being stoned, speared, fed to wild animals and things like that in the gladiatorial ring, that they might be encouraged and strengthened. And so I offer you this. Revelation can be tricky to work out. But if your interpretation... If your interpretation leads you to a space where you come to confusion rather than comfort, study some more. I reckon you've got work to do. If your interpretation leads you to a place of speculation rather than certainty, you've missed the author's purpose. And I'll say more strongly, if your interpretation leads you to a place of horror rather than hope, I think you've misunderstood the book. And many good brothers and Christians dedicated to the Word of God seem to end in places of horror that make you more fearful than hopeful. And I think they might have misunderstood some stuff, though I value them so much as brothers and sisters, I will contend with some of the things that are said. Revelation as a book is a very honest, very honest, and if you'll allow it, clear and emotive picture of what life on planet earth today looks like and at the same time as being a very clear and emotive picture of what life on planet earth looks like today it's also a very clear honest and i find emotive picture of the god who has overcome the turmoil the god who never lost control the god who is on the throne the god who is to use revelation language the victor the victory winner over a world that is in turmoil, tyranny, and serious, serious strife. So as we contemplate these things from Revelation 6 today, the thing I want you to know, uh, and I'll give it to you in writing, is you know you're alive when you're dying for more. You know you're alive when you're dying for more. I was really grateful, uh, though I called his wife a fembot not that long ago, uh, Greg Bell came past my office the other day we have this lovely thing that tends to happen in the offices every now and then i'm working on some sermon stuff and i'll just walk into greg's office and vomit stuff at him under the guise of maybe this will help with your song choices for the weekend but i'm just thinking out loud uh maybe i picked up that habit from a certain reverend ian barnett he used to do it to me which sort of zigzagged down the corridor i think anyway i shared some of this stuff with greg and he reminded me of the words of c.s lewis c.s lewis was saying hey your goldfish doesn't know he's wet. What he was trying to say is, for a goldfish being wet and in the bowl, that's just normal, right? He doesn't know he's wet. He's not, can someone get me a towel? He doesn't know he's wet. Yet we're time conscious, aren't we? We wear watches or have it on our phone. We think about how many days, how long, whatever. Because unlike the goldfish who understands, I'm I'm just a bowl-dwelling animal, you know you're built for eternity. And so you feel something of the space you're in that is time-bound because you're an eternal being. And so you have this wrestle. The Christian calls it a, a, a homesickness for heaven. The not-yet-Christian says, yeah, something's not right here. There's got to be more. You know you're alive when you're dying for more, when your more is just not more of the same, but bigger, difference, and you're dying for it, and you would die for it. 
So I promised you that Revelation gives us a, a realistic picture of where we are. If you've ever read the book, and from what you heard this morning, if you were freaked out by that, don't be freaked out. It was uh, just over 25 years ago, my very first time in church at Maryland's Anglican, and that was the Bible reading. Isn't God funny that now I'm teaching it some years later? Yeah, so I was a uh, high school kid who was freaked out by all these horses of unnatural colors, and now I get to teach about them. I love God and the way he works. So you hear this pattern of seven. You heard of seven seals, did you not? These are the things that happen throughout the book. You keep hearing about these seven. There's seven stars, and we're given a beginner introductory lesson. Oh, they're, they're, they're the churches, and there's seven seals, and there's seven bowls, and there's seven trumpets, and all these seven. But where did you first learn about the significant seven in the Bible? Call it out, because it's where you learnt it, so you won't be wrong. God created, right? This is in the beginning. Literally, the words are there. In the beginning, creation is a seven installment events. For six days, God worked, and on the seventh day, he rested. Revelation is like creation version 2.0, because now we are going to new creation. And once again, you're going to see that pattern of seven. And it gets debated, but I'll help you with my take on this. Once again, you're going to go on a journey where God's going to do six installments before the final. Unlike some, I contend for you today, the one, two, three, four, five, six, that's a picture of our world now. From fall to the return of Jesus. That's simply a description of the life that you are living. Now, I told you this is kind of like a cartoon because you've got these seals, and these seals come on a scroll. Here's the first cartoon moment, like Tony Abbott in Red Speedos. The Roman emperors all used to have these scrolls, particularly Domitian. And like you might see in some other empires where you might have a scepter, they have a scroll. And written on the scroll were some of their, their different titles and things like that. And when you get to someone like Domitian, you've got divine titles like Son of God and all these sorts of things. People were to address him as my Lord and my God when they met him. Swell guy. Uh, so they would have a scroll. In chapter 5 of Revelation, who's given the scroll and who's the only one with the right to open it? It's the Lamb. Spoiler alert, the Lamb is Jesus. He's the one. Not you, Domitian. Jesus. You see the cartoon playing out. Now the cartoon moves on to opening the scroll and breaking the seals. Now don't be freaked out by this. This is all quite simple. Uh, after seals, I guess, came envelopes, and today we have files on our computer and folders, as you'll see on the screen here. This is quite simple. Basically, he's opening the information. He's breaking wax seals to see what's in there. And uh, it's just like when you, on my computer, I go to... Revelation and the seven, the seven seals, well, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. Open the folder and it'll tell you the information. Now, it's not this one, then this one, then this one, then this one. They're not sequential. They're just places of information about the one topic. The best way I can explain this to you is if you were to look at my wedding album. Sorry, my darling, our wedding album. I think one of the first pictures in it is of myself and the guys getting ready to pop down to church. Do you honestly think in your wildest dreams we were getting ready before the girls were getting ready? Or well, maybe you do. Um, we weren't. 
it was a case of shower suit on duck down the road. Uh, it's not a sequential album. It's just pictures of the things that happen. And what we have in, here in Revelation 6 is six pictures of what you should expect in the world you live in. Now, let's look at some of these folders. You've got rivalry. Some call this conquest, but I feel like that's a language that kind of dismisses us from the issue. This is, you know, you sort of go, you hear conquest. Yeah, that's those, those, those world leaders who are always trying to invade someone else and stuff like that. I suspect it's more accurate to just, just call it rivalry because all of us seem to ignore God's wisdom when he said, don't covet. Don't go looking for something that's not yours and is someone else's, but we do. And this is part of our experience where there's rivalry. I see what you've got, you see what I've got, and sometimes in your heart you'd like to take it. And sometimes things get ugly and humans do take it. Sometimes you pull me down a peg with your words and I might do the same to you. I take something, it's rivalry. Uh, we live in a world of war. We live in a world of death. We live in a world I've called injustice. Now, in the passage, you might recall there's this weird language of uh, a denarius for so much wheat and this sort of thing. Let me contextualize that for today. You'll live in a world where it will be $2 for a litre of fuel. Can't get toilet paper for love nor money. That's essentially what's happening. We know that famine exists in our world today not for want of food, but for want of sharing. There's enough food to feed everybody easily. We just don't like to share it. You live in a world of injustice. Now, remember I said to you, Revelation should not leave you feeling like you need to speculate, but that you can be certain, nor leave you in horror, but full of hope. So of these first four seals, there are the famous four horsemen. Uh, Hollywood loves the famous four horsemen, and some theologians, I think mistakenly, love them in a wrong way too speculating of this terrible time where four terrible horsemen will gather over the will gallop over the earth causing these things this is not making my heart feel better i want you to know that these ponies are out now this is a god who sees the existence of those those under domitian sees your existence today and says you live in a world where there's a galloping rivalry. There's a pony of war. There's death in Hades. And there's injustice. I see it. It's ravaging. This isn't a thing to come where you think, I thought it was bad. Now, what's to come? This isn't to make people under uh, persecution melt. This is for them to say, we're not being picked on. Something hasn't gone wrong with us. This is what God says our world now is like does anyone want to debate that there's rivalry does anyone anyone want to debate that there's war does anyone want to debate that there's death does anyone want to debate that there's injustice if you do your homework just check your facebook scroll that's all you need to do you'll see it and this is part of the cartoon you see uh domitian had the uh domitian games kind of like the olympics but horrific in the arena, all the gladiatorial stuff that you've heard of. So Revelation, the whole book plays out like a cartoon of the Domitian games. From the very beginning of those games would be reports from different areas of his empire. Uh, it'd be like, uh, so, Farnborough Heights, I've heard this about you. 
Fig tree, I've heard this about you. Wollongong, I've heard this about you. Unindera, you've got a velodrome, you guys are great. Uh, Cordo Heights, I've heard about you. And then a pronouncement is passed. This is the famous thumb goes up. No good. That's going to be trouble. For one area, Domitian said, this was his edict, I no longer grant them permission to exist. And he obliterated them. Or you get a, with you unpleased. This is what happens in the first few chapters of Revelation. Write a letter to this church. Hey, church at Ephesus, church at Sardis, church at Philadelphia. I've heard about you. Here's the report. And you get a this, this, or this. But from a gracious king in Jesus. The Domitian Games started in the same way with the report, and that's what's happening. Then in the Domitian Games, you would have episodes like horses running through, and following after death was a character called Hades, and his job was to clean up the bodies. What we've got here is a cartoon depiction based on Domitian's world that explains God gets what you're seeing. He sees it too. Don't be confused. Not a blueprint, but a powerful feeling i'm touching my tummy because you're meant to feel it here sometimes you race to this book and try and feel it here feel it here a little more okay i know we're sydney anglicans i know we're quite cerebral but you've got to press into this with with some feeling don't check your brain at the door but you've got to feel something and so within this space god's describing the world with these different seals Hey, he says it's a place where some of you will die for your faith. Fifth seal, some will die. Sixth seal, and here's another contentious one, is this significant wrath event. I better read it for you. I haven't put it on the screen, but I'll read it. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves. They were terrified. Hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us! From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now many who are wise people will say, yeah, that's the end of days and this terrible thing that's going to come. This book was never meant to make you feel horrific about what's to come, but hopeful. What's being described here is the death of Jesus. Just like Matthew describes the death of Jesus. And at that time, the sky turned dark. There was an earthquake. Rocks split. What Matthew, John, Joel, and other parts of the scriptures, Amos and others, are trying to do is guard you and I from never thinking, oh, what a sad story about that little bloke from Nazareth who died on a cross that day. I'll put my hope in that. No, they're trying to help you see this was a cosmic event. This was the wrath of God, as big and bad as it can get, being poured out in, I guess, a two-meter square area on Jesus. This is a mega wrath event. You go, it's the wrath of the lamb. The wrath of the lamb doesn't mean the wrath from the lamb. That would be an unusual way for that language to be used. You see, running around going, meh, meh, meh. That's not how lambs work. The wrath of the lamb is the wrath that falls upon the lamb. He's the lamb of God, John wrote once before, who takes away the sins of the world. 
If you want to say it's the lamb being angry at the end, then you're going to have to find a new way that John hasn't used before to use lamb. What we've got here is the lamb bearing the terrible wrath of God. You'll say, but where were the kings running? It's image language. It's a cartoon. Tony Abbott doesn't wear speedos to the office. I hope. This is a picture of the atonement. The picture of Jesus bearing the sin of us on the cross in cartoon form. What Revelation gives us is a clear picture of our world and a clear picture of God. And so we ask ourselves, what should I expect? Well, here's what I think you should expect as you live in our world today. This is what our world is gripped by. It's gripped by rivalry. It's gripped by war. It's gripped by injustice. It's gripped by death. These are all very concrete things. I think you would have to work very hard to find someone who didn't believe these things were real. Part of the reason for this series is because we live in a time with many concrete reminders of stuff like this. And I love that God alongside this put, and whilst you're in a world gripped by these evils that you participate in, it will also be a time of atonement. And that atonement is as concrete and as real as people dying. The atonement is as real and as concrete and now as the injustice you see. The atonement is as real and as concrete and as now as the rivalry you sometimes feel. So God is teaching us at this point, yeah, I know that the world's pretty messed up. I've told you that in black and white in some clearer passages of scripture, but now you're going to feel something about it. And uh, at the very same time is a God who will lay down his life for you. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The wrath of God has fallen upon him. So, Christian in the ancient world under Domitian, know that God hasn't forgotten you. No, he's giving you in the starkest of language, I see your circumstance. Do you see my atonement? I see your circumstance. Do you see my son? I feel your terror. Do you know your hope? Because they sit together. They sit together. Now you'll look at my diagram and you'll go, you left out the martyrs. I didn't. Because that's where I want us to focus this morning. In the midst of a time whilst we await the return of Jesus, these things are real, the atonement is real, and when the fifth seal was opened, we're invited to see those who had died. What should I expect in our now time? I should expect, well look, I should expect rivalry, war, injustice, death and atonement. What else should I expect? I should expect faith to be costly. It's not weird when it's costly. That's what it looks like. What should I expect? The desire for more. To feel homesick for heaven. To feel like, oh man, this place is messed up. This little blue ball. (sighs) I want more. Not more of it, but more. And expect that even if you die for your faith, and some of you might, and some of your brothers and sisters are, to be very much alive. So let's focus on the fifth seal. Let me show you those who did die and those who are dying to this day. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Often in preparation to, to teach a passage, what I do is I, I write out the passage in my own words. You know, like the message. This is the shainage. I write it out, and for this one I said, when he opened the fifth seal, he looked, and under the place of sacrifice, he saw, this might sound weird, he saw the disembodied embodiment of faith. Because there they are, the souls. Their bodies are dead. Someone chucked a spear through them. Someone cut them with swords. Someone fed them to an animal, and the doctor couldn't fix them. Their body died. But here they are alive. Their body died, but here they are as a, like the embodiment of faith. You want to see faith? Look at these guys. Nothing could shake it. They were literally dying for more. And so they are the, embod- the disembodied embodiment of faith. There they are. They are word believers. They believe in the testimony. Here's the beauty of this picture. This is not just Christians as such. This is all who have trusted in the God of the Bible even before Christ. Those who have heard God's call, being faithful to him throughout the scriptures, it's always by grace, received by faith. They have trusted and sometimes people have killed them because that's what happens on planet Earth. Expect there to be war, rivalry, death, injustice, atonement. Expect faith to be costly. So you've got faithful Jews, you've got Christians, you've got John the Baptist, you've got all these people killed for their faith. And there they are, the disembodied embodiment of faith. What, it teaches us something about what faithful looks like in this time. Faithful looks like surrender and sacrifice, because where do you see them? There they are, like the bits of dead bull and dead goat and whatever else got sacrificed on the altar, under the altar. So in this picture of sacrifice, the disembodied embodiment of faithfulness unshakable well done good and faithful servants you see you know you're alive when you die for more let's ask ourselves the question is there something beyond the maintenance of my vital signs that I'm committed to Is there something more than breath in my body? Is there something more than keeping all my blood contained? Is there something more than a pleasant experience of having vital signs? Or like these guys, do you know you're alive when you're dying for more? There's something bigger than being safe and well. There's something bigger than being animated and having vital signs. We continue to look at these martyrs, and we ask ourselves, we've asked a bit of a who question, let's ask a what question. Uh, As we go to verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? These martyrs, will you firstly notice that they're alive? So yes, they're dead. They were killed for their faith. Something happened to them. An injury was brought upon them that a doctor couldn't fix. And their bodies are in an animal's tummy somewhere. In a tomb, if they're lucky. 
eaten by birds maybe. But I see him talking. That's irregular for a dead person. They're alive. Though they died, they are alive. Will you also note that they're not asleep? It's not a sound interpretation of what happens to a Christian when they die. They're not asleep. They're alive, they're awake, and they're alive to the Lord. And they're with him. They're in communion with him. Uh, So here they are, alive, not dead, asleep, and can I say not confused. Uh, They are not in a state where they go, what went wrong? How did you lose control of your own world? We are here dead because you took a day off. That's not what's happening. They say, how long, Sovereign Lord? Now, understand the how long question. This is not my teenager who, after church, will go to his mother because he thinks she gets in too many conversations. None of your children would do that, right? Oh, mom's talking, and how long till we go? Not that kind of how long. It's my 11-year-old with whom, and my teenager, I'm road tripping to the Formula One Grand Prix on Wednesday. He says to me, Dad, two days to go. It's a different kind of how long. This is not an impatient how long. This is a, the real thing is coming. They're like, the real thing is coming. Why would I say that? Because look how they address God. Sovereign Lord. They're not God who took, we're dead because you took a day off. No, they're like, we're dead. And we trust that you are the sovereign Lord. You can't get a higher title than that. You control everything and you are the Lord. You're boss of everything. Boss of death, boss of life, boss of time, boss of eternity. You're the boss. Sovereign Lord, not God who took a day off. Not God who was blind in our deepest, darkest turmoil. Sovereign Lord who controls all things even when we don't understand. What else, what else do they say? holy and true they're like man we know we live and lived and died on this world tainted by sin with rivalry war injustice and death the beauty of them calling god um holy and true is to be holy means to be separate it's almost like they're saying hey we're here dead because we got caught up in this world that's so tainted but you're holy You're untainted. We're tainted, killed by an evil world, and we were contributors. We know that. We're all sinners. But you're holy and untainted. And not only are you untainted, you're true. I think I've shared this with you before. When we tell the truth, we make sure our words align with reality. When God spoke in creation, he spoke, and reality said, quick, quick, every molecule, let's get in line with what he said. Do you see the difference? We're creatures, so we make sure that our words line up with reality. God's creator, so reality must line up with his words. They're not confused. They're not asleep. They're not dead. They're not confused. They say, wow, even in this death, God, you are sovereign Lord. You have control over all things. You're not tainted by the circumstance or affected by it. And you are true, so all things must come into alignment with you. This is going to get done. Not how long, God, but... We know it's coming. We know it's coming. We know it's coming. That's the kind of language that is on their lips. And what's coming is your perfect justice. You know you're alive when you believe there is someone who is more. 
And so let's ask ourselves, do we believe God is in control? Do we believe God is separate from the tainted world and above it? Do we believe that his measure is the perfect measure? Maybe ask it a different way. Um, is there something better than your justice? You know, sometimes someone does wrong by me, I get him back. But if I believe like these guys believe, then I'm like, no, 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 no. God will get this sorted out. And he'll do it in a better way. And it'll be perfect. And it'll be wonderful. And so I entrust myself to him. For he is God. We move on with our masters and we ask ourselves a when question. Revelation 6.11 Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. What do we see? Well, in their waiting, in their now time, the time they share with us, they were given a white robe a white robe of purity, a white robe of justification. And do you know why? Because in the same way that they are dead because of a world gripped by rivalry, war, injustice, and death, they are justified, pure and whole, because the atonement is just as real. There is nothing better I can say to you this morning out of all of this then. The death of Jesus means that anyone who trusts in him and receives him gets to say, I'm, I'm good for eternity now. I'm ready to die for more. There is nothing that can take me out of God's hand. No one can ever shame me out of God's family. Jesus died for me and that atonement, that payment is as real as any other fact that will punch you in the face today. I'm hoping no one gets punched in the face. Again, I'm being a cartoon, speaking figuratively. They're given a white robe and they're told to wait a little longer. Uh, helpful language around that wait that uh, some of the other translation use is rest a little longer. Because here's the thing. In their death, they didn't lose. In their death, they took off a whole bunch of other words. Rivalry, war, injustice and death. Left that body and that creation behind kept the atonement and the forgiveness, and now they're with the Lord. So they're told, rest. The burden's over. The challenge is over. What is this happening? This, this informs us really well about what happens when we die. This is what Jesus said to the thief next to him on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is not the same as when we talk about heaven, which is problematic language, Paradise is not the same as the new creation. Paradise is to take off this junk, be alive to the Lord and not asleep, and in this wonderful space where they are with great confidence, seeing God and being seen, and still excited about more. They've taken off the tyranny of the seven seals. They're alive to the Lord and they wait for the more to come. What is the more to come? The return of Jesus. See, my death and the return of Jesus are not of the same weight. Sometimes we treat them as the same weight. But what's going on here is you die, you're alive to the Lord in paradise, everything's wonderful, there's no more turmoil. And then someday, Jesus will return and stand on the dust of this earth. Heaven and earth will come together. All things will be made new. This is the seventh seal. 
creation version 2.0 or new creation will be. None of the other junky words will be there. There'll be no night. There'll be no seed. There'll be no drama. There'll just be you and me and God and everyone else who trusts in Jesus and we'll worship the Lamb and it will be wonderful. I love that we can die for more knowing that your friend who you lost or remember, my mum who I lost and remember, are alive to the Lord today if they are in Christ. Alive to the Lord today if they are in Christ. The drama you still face day in and day out, they don't face anymore. But together, I love this, together on the same timeline, we look to the sovereign Lord and we say, how long till the next bit? And he says, wait there, you're justified. And we wait for the time where Jesus returns. A new body is given to them. A new body is given to me. And my mum who is alive to the Lord, your friend who is alive to the Lord, comes and embraces you with flesh. (laughs) Can you believe it? You know you're alive when you're dying for more. When you're ready to leave those horrible words behind to be alive to the Lord and come, come on his journey where he builds all things. I'm going to be apologizing all day for preaching too long, so let me bring us into land. You know you're alive when you have righteousness that is not your own. It's the more that you've died to. You're surrendered to Christ. You know you're alive when you can stare at death. And scary as it is, no, it's not the end. You know you're alive when you know that there is more to your story than just your story, just your earthly time. There's more. You know you're alive when you know there's more to the world's historical story, that there's a new creation to come. You know you're alive when you know that it's the return of Jesus that you really crave. When the best prayer you can pray is, come Lord Jesus, come, for the final and eternal chapter to begin. And so brothers and sisters, this morning, if you're still awake, I didn't know how to do this in a quicker way. I'm sorry, and my heart is moved. It's kind of sorry, not sorry this morning. I'm too moved by this to do it quicker. I just can't. Maybe it's the African in me that preaches till he's done. Truthfully, I'm not done, but I have to be done. Let's ask ourselves, have I become unconscious? No longer craving for the more that comes with the return of Jesus. Unconscious because I'm so satisfied with where I am. Like the goldfish who doesn't even realize he's wet anymore. Thinking this is it. If you've become unconscious like that, then may the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, breathe his life into your soul again today. Make you homesick for heaven and in a holy way, discontents with this six seal earth that we're living on. Ask yourself, have you begun to think safe And not persecuted is normal for those of faith. It's not. 80% of the world's persecution is at your brothers and sisters. 2,000 years of church history will tell you 
People die for this. Years of faithful Israel before that will tell you. People die for this. Our existence is the weird one. And the words of Scripture will tell you, to Timothy, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. Are you dying for more? Ask yourself, is the idea of being alive about simply taking the best experience this world has to offer or do you know you're truly alive because in Christ you are dying for more? A heart yearning for what he has next. Thank you for your patience. Let me pray. Gracious Father, I think I get it. I think I get why you give us pictures in this book because words can't express. Lord, amongst my brothers and sisters here, there are tears that are cried. There are hearts that are broken for some of the things either described in these seven seals or in the trumpets or the bowls. The world is messed up, Lord, just as you told us, in bondage to decay. And we love you and thank you for the things you've given us that sweeten our experience and cause it to be a joy. But Lord, sooner or later we are bitten by one of those dark and traumatic times as well. Father, I pray for every heart here and watching at home as well, that your Holy Spirit now might breathe his life into us, renewing us the reality that Jesus has rescued us for the new creation. We thank you that as much as these other hardships are real, so is his atoning work, that wrath is paid. And so, Father God, I pray alive for us that we'll be renewed in our sense of certainty and life in him, alive in us that we'll be renewed in our joy that those we have lost, who are in Christ, are alive to you now. And I pray, Lord, alive for us, that along with them, we might confidently look to you, Heavenly Father, and say, how long? Surely not long, till the time of the new creation, where we see you face to face, where we fellowship in the flesh, and heaven and earth are together. Lord God, by your Spirit, may we be a people who are genuinely dying for more. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.